Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Hello. It is Wednesday, August the 24th, 2022. It's Wednesday. It must be Linda Day. Earlier today, I interviewed the journalist and author Linda Kintzler. Interesting new book, important new book. Come to this court and cry, a book about how the Holocaust ends. And we've got another Linda and another journalist and author, Linda. This time um, it is Linda uh, Villarosa, another important book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. It was interesting yesterday, because I did an interview with the, uh, the journalist, the NPR medical reporter, Anya Kamenetz. She has a new book out, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. And uh, Anya made it clear in our conversation that black lives had been much more dramatically affected, much, much uh, more negatively affected by COVID uh, than white lives. And I suspect that, um, uh, that Linda Villarosa will agree. One of her other pieces that she published in the New York Times, she's a prolific writer, was entitled A Terrible Price, The Deadly Racial Disparities of COVID-19 in America, and I'm thrilled and honored that Linda Villarosa is joining us from Brooklyn, New York. Linda, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Wednesday's Linda Day, Linda. Um, does uh, the COVID year or years that uh, uh, that Anya Kamenatz wrote about, does that uh, show, does that prove the argument you make, at least in your mind, in uh, under the skin that uh, that uh, the health of our nation, our nation being America, um, is dramatically affected by racism and that accounts for why blacks have suffered much more in the COVID years than whites? Well, when COVID first began, uh, the pandemic began in early 2020, before there were statistics about um, race that looked at COVID um, hospitalizations and death rate by race. Those of us who study um, health disparities and those of us especially who study um, HIV AIDS knew that the statistics would come out um, showing that Black people and other people of color, but Black people especially, would have worse COVID outcomes. And that is exactly what happened. And the thing that really struck me was that um, the hospitalizations and death rates are really important, but also black folks get old, uh, uh, younger black people get worse cases. Um, so if you look at how people are affected from if they're ages 50 to 60, um, black people are much worse and look like white people 10 years older. So there, um, there's the belief that there's a kind of accelerated aging that goes with being black in America that affects black people's bodies. And this was proven out when COVID began. You mentioned HIV. We also had Stephen Thrasher on the show, another uh, writer on these issues. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He's connected the experience of blacks under HIV and COVID. I assume that you're very much on the same page as Thrasher. I was on his PhD committee. So. Wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, I know him well. Um, his book is wonderful. He's a really smart guy. And um, he like he and I were both sort of journalists in the trenches of HIV AIDS together. So we understood that, um, you know, virus uh, sinks into the cracks of marginalization. And that's what happened with HIV. And that's what happened again with COVID. So let's get to the heart of the argument, Linda, in Under the Skin, uh, the hidden toll of racism on American lives and on the health of our nation. Is it simply because, in your view, the medical establishment in America is racist, or are there more complicated reasons for this health disparity? Oh, it's much more complicated, but certainly racism within um, the medical establishment or the healthcare, um, you know, field is a problem. I think it's threefold. One is something about being black in America, like I was saying, has this um, aging effect on the body. It's best explained through the concept of weathering. That was coined by Dr. Arlene Geronimus, whose book comes out in eight months. So you'll have to have her on the show, too. Definitely. Was she, were yeah. you on her committee, too? <laughs> no, she's a little older than me. Um, but she uh, coined this term to describe what happens when people are treated badly. And in the case of Black Americans, we've been, you know, beginning with enslavement for 250 years through um, systematic racism in society that has taken a toll on our bodies, which we call, what she calls weathering. And that is the idea that just like a house is weathered by the storm, the body is weathered by um, constant abuse or aggressions, microaggressions, all, prejudice, that, all these kinds of things. I like that she's a poet and a, 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 a um, researcher because weathering also has the dual sort of meaning that we weather this storm and the way the black community has weathered um, sort of racism. The second reason um, is that our communities are less healthful. And usually black people are blamed for that. But if you look at the history of segregation, which is basically state sanctioned, um, you look at redlining, redlined communities, historically redlined communities, which meant that they were, people were denied mortgages and couldn't uh, get home loans. That meant that those uh, communities were uh, lacked wealth and continue to lack wealth, and then they lack health, healthful um, things like clean air, clean water, um, housing that is a good housing, uh, sort of like things like that, that make people less healthful. And then the third reason is discrimination and racism in the healthcare system itself. And I don't believe individual healthcare providers are so-called racist. I think that in no one in America can escape the kinds of stereotypes that have been floating around since slavery that still infect our society, including the healthcare system. Linda, you know uh, in your book and in your work that you're from, quote unquote, the middle class. Um, some people will be listening to this or watching thinking, well, this is really, it's not about race, it's about class. But you include some stories about your family, your quote unquote middle class family in your book to, to make your argument. How do, you, um, how do your own personal experiences uh, resonate with your broader argument? I think it was hard for me to believe that um, this wasn't just a case of poverty because that was the longstanding belief in still people believe that. And I believe poverty makes everything worse. But I finally woke up when my father, um, I guess over 20 years ago was and in, he's the in this photo, a very dapper looking man at your graduation. Oh, your sister's graduation. Yes, I'm smiling at that photo of my father. 
So he was a veteran. He um, went into the hospital and I was living in New York and he was in Denver. And my mother called me and she said, you need to come immediately because your father needs you. So I jumped on a plane. I was pregnant. I put my New York Times business cards in because uh, I was working there full time at the time. And my, I got off the plane. I said, Mom, what's going on? And she said, your father's in the hospital. They're treating him very badly. And you, we need to go and talk to them. So we went to the hospital. My father was basically restrained, shackled to the bed. And we, I was so surprised. He was wearing a dirty gown. He was very disheveled. He was upset. So my mother and I went and we got pictures of him dressed up like you see him at the graduation. We got pictures of his medals. We told them that he's as educated as a scientist. So I was surprised at how he was being treated. And we said, he has a, a really good mind. If you explain things to him, he won't be upset and you won't have to restrain him like an animal. And that was that had a big impact on me. My father died, you know, a few months later, but I was I was really upset by the way he was treated when he was ill, especially at a veterans hospital when he had served the country. And that made me see, and certainly many of the studies that I reference, they um, sort of look at race and class at differently. So it's saying, so the studies say we're looking at race in and of itself in um, people, black and white, who are matched for class. And you still see differences in health outcomes that aren't explained by poverty. Some people will be watching this, Linda, and thinking, well, that's all very well, but some white people are shackled to their bed and some perhaps older men who, whose minds are challenged, shall we say. They may have been professors, they may have been doctors or whatever. How, how do you respond to that? I mean, at, at what point does race become everything in terms of this argument? And at one point do we have to say, well, not every medical explanation or every explanation of some issue in the medical system reflects race? Um, I want to say to anyone who has had a hard time in the medical system and healthcare system, I'm sorry. And it does happen um, to everyone. And um, it's because of the hectic way our you know, very expensive healthcare is delivered. However, there it is very well evidenced that black people are treated worse. And it's, um, if you want to look at the deep dive of evidence, um, it's in my book, but also I looked at, this was about in 2002, and it was a study by the federal government and by the National Academy of Sciences that looked at 483 other studies that were matched for class. And it looked, almost all were matched for class. In other words, it was looking specifically at black, white, and other people of color. And it found that black people have a worse time, worse treatment in the healthcare system, period. I looked at one of those studies and it was about amputations for diabetes. So it had black patients and white patients. They were matched for severity of diabetes and they were matched for healthcare coverage. And still, Black people were significantly more likely to get their legs cut off, even when the severity was the same and even when the ability to pay was the same. So clearly, that's just one of 483 studies that have shown this. I also have given a historical look at this and traced a through line from enslavement all the way to present day, um, you know, looking at what happens to, to Black people in the healthcare system during enslavement, torture by doctors and scientists, all the way to um, today where we have unequal treatment. And it's not, I mean, I do understand how people have had, individuals have had 
you know, bad experiences. But I also urge people that have a little bit of trouble believing this to just look at the data. It's so well evidenced that um, some of us who are um, sort of looking at this healthcare disparities in America based on race are kind of like, well, <laughs> we're kind of tired of talking about this because it's so well documented and it has been for so long. Linda, you're one of the contributors to the 1619 Project, New York Times um, Project. How does this fit in to the broader issue of race and racism and racial inequality in America? Uh, in economic terms, in political terms, in sexual terms? I think what it means is if, um, if we have a country that it's unequal. So if you look at the country as a whole, if you look at the United States as a whole, we have the most expensive healthcare in the world. We also have super ad technically advanced healthcare in America, yet we have among the highest, if not the highest level of infant mortality. We have the highest levels of, we have a growing level of maternal mortality, which is when a woman dies or almost dies in childbirth. And then all the way at the end of the spectrum, we have low life expectancy compared to other wealthy countries, period. So why is it that our country, which is so well resourced and also, you know, our healthcare system is very advanced. Why do we have such poor health outcomes? And I think that too often it's looked at as a mystery and people are like, I don't understand this. But if you look closely at the inequality, you look at health of people of color and other marginalized people, then you see the kind of inequality pulling down the levels for the country as a whole and making us look bad in the world. So that's why it matters is because it really is a factor in our healthcare as a whole because of the way marginalized people are treated in the system and in the country. You talk about marginalized people. Um, we've done a number of shows on Latinos in America, one with Juan Gonzalez, the author of Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America. I didn't get into this conversation with him. But how does your experience, yours being the African-American experience, differ? Or how is it the same from Latinos in America? Um, you know what's interesting is Black people have the worst health outcomes in America. And Native Americans are second. And we're the two groups that have really been here the longest. Um, but here's an interesting study that um, Dr. Geronimus, who has the weathering um, concept. Yeah, I'm going to get on the show. You said you're introducing. Yes, me. I'm going to make sure to do that. So she talked to me about um, a study she did, and it, I think it was in 2008. And it looked at this town called um, Postville, Iowa. So in Postville, there's a very large um, meat manufacturing plant. And most of the people working there are Latinx. So they're mostly Central American immigrants, um, some undocumented, some documented. And in 2008, there was the, the then largest ice raid in the history of the country. And so the federal government, you know, police went in and busted people. They went to people's jobs. They separated families. They um, really traumatized that community. Uh, then she went back and looked at the birth weights of babies a year later after, you know, this trauma had happened. And Latinx babies in that area were significantly smaller. And smaller babies is what leads to problems like the death of an infant or the death of a mother. And it took just this trauma that happened over a period of time to affect the, not just the people who were 
in, you know, worked in the plant, but it reverberated to the Latin community, Latino community as a whole. And what, so I don't believe black people are special that we've had, um, there's some genetic reason why this has happened and that hasn't happened to other people. It's just that black people have been studied longer because our bodies were commodified during enslavement as we talked about in the 1619 project. And then when our bodies weren't worth as much, then we became subject to things like forced sterilization and the sort of mistreatment has continued and shows up in our health. There was an interesting um, comment in the review of your book from the New York Times. It said, um, I'm writing this review the week after the Supreme Court's draft ruling to overturn Roe versus Wade was leaked. In the days since, some women and activists on social media have predicted that the Handmaid's Tale will become a reality. Handmaid's Tale, of course, being Margaret, Margaret Atwood's dystopian take on the future of birthing, shall we say, conveniently forgetting that it already has been for generations of American women who are not white. How, um, how are the differences in terms of this hidden toll of racism that, that you argue about in Under the Skin? How is it different from black men and black women um, and do you agree with that reviewer that now white women are beginning to experience with perhaps a post Roe versus Wade America, what it's like to be a black woman in America? I'm going to um, say it two ways. The first is that if you read further into that review, um, the author of the review had a terrible time having a baby. She she talks about her own near tragic birth outcome that she was and she blamed herself. And in the middle of a really good review, um, she tells her personal story, which I really appreciated because I think at some point the pileup of personal stories about what happens to birthing people who are black in America just becomes its own kind of evidence. And I think that how I think about the end of Roe, um, it happened in Mississippi. And Mississippi is the um, poorest state in America. It's also the blackest state in America. It has extremely high levels of maternal and infant mortality and worse, high levels of child death. And so if you take away um, any kind of rights in this state, which is full of black people and full of poor people, then, you know, the suffering becomes worse. And sometimes it's very interesting. I, I listen to people who are against abortion talk about, oh, we can take care of all the children who are going to be born because abortion no longer exists. And I think that if that were true, we wouldn't have those poor birth health outcomes and really children suffering in this state. Um, the, the other thing is, I think the way Black women and others certainly have looked at um, abortion is part of a continuum of reproductive justice. And that is simply the right to have a child. And that means you can't force forcibly sterilize people or sterilize them against their will is what happened to black people in the past and Latinx people as well. You, you, um, people should be allowed to not have a baby. So you have the right to have birth control and you have the right to have an abortion. And the third part about it is if you choose to have a baby, you should be able to raise your baby safely and healthfully. And I think that's really important. That is the that is what body autonomy is about. And that is more of a frame um, created by black women in like the 90s. And it has gotten a little bit lost that abortion, it doesn't just mean abortion. It means the loss of reproductive justice as a whole. 
You mentioned forced sterilization in your book and in your work. You write about the Ralph sisters, not from Mississippi, but from Alabama, another very poor state. Um, you wrote a piece called The Long Shadow of Eugenics in America for the New York Times Magazine. This is, I think, for many people, one of the most shameful and troubling aspects of your narrative. How central do you think this remains? I mean, eugenics certainly once existed. Can we still find it in America? Well, for many years, um, eugenics was part of the law. And most, I mean, all, almost all every state has overturned. Explain that, Linda. What do you mean part of the law? So it meant that if someone was um, uh, mentally ill or dis, dis, disabled, then it was okay. And it was by law that they could be forcibly sterilized. And then it, so it was mainly about people who were disabled and sometimes incarcerated. Then even after the laws were overturned, there was a huge um, time in America where black people, mostly in the South, were sterilized without their will or against their will or without their consent. And that's what happened to the Ralph sisters at ages 12 and 14 in 1973. And 1973 isn't that long ago. That's, that's a recent picture of those sisters. They're still alive. They're in their 60s. And that happened to them. And it was yeah. part of... You was know, it illegal? I mean, what could... Did, did, it, have, have, at the time, was this legal? It was legal. It was, or I should say, it was not illegal. So there was no law against it, but certainly the law of humanity tells you that you can't, you shouldn't be sterilizing people, children, without their will or without the consent of their what parents. What was the justification for sterilizing these 12-year-old girls? So in Mississippi at the time, it was the tail end of the Great Migration. So um, during the bulk of the Great Migration earlier, Black people left the South and went to cities like Chicago or Cleveland or Detroit, um, New York. And then later in the Great Migration, they tended to go to cities that were in the South. So the Ralph family, who were um, the parents couldn't read or write, um, they came to Montgomery, Alabama, because they, you know, there was no more cotton to pick. There, there was mechanization, so there were fewer jobs, fewer jobs for farmers. So they came to the city, and then they got on the rolls of the, you know, government. So they had public housing, they had public assistance. The kids went to public schools, and they had public health care. And public health, this is not illegal, but it's certainly immoral, was sterilizing people under the guise that there were too many Black people who were poor and uneducated coming into cities. Certainly after the Ralph case, that became illegal. Now you cannot sterilize someone against their will or without their consent or the consent of their parents. However, this still was happening fairly recently in um, prisons in California. And there was a big expose a few years ago about this. So although eugenics per se in that way doesn't happen, certainly it's still going on in some ways. And at this point, it's you know being uncovered and people are looking, states are looking to give reparations to um, women and men who were sterilized without their consent or against their will. Yeah, it's particularly chilling. I noted at the beginning that uh, the other Linda wrote about the Holocaust. It seems in some ways, I know it's easy to compare these two events of the history of slavery and racism in America and in, in the uh, the Jewish Holocaust in Europe, but uh, there, there seem to be some things that they have in common. Uh, Linda, um, we had Robert Pearl. I mean, you're probably familiar with his work, a prominent doctor. 
the author of Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, another great critic of the American medical system, although not probably so much from the point of view of race. Uh, and we had him recently on the show. He talked about the parallel pandemics of COVID anxiety and gun violence are part of the same crisis of American healthcare. I assume you would add as perhaps the principal pandemic affecting America, racism. Is is racism a, a kind of pandemic? I think it's a kind of virus that is very hard to get rid of. It's very hard to recognize. It's really painful to have discussions of race and racism. I was thinking about in um, New York City, our Department of Health, um, a few years ago, uh, Mary Bassett was the commission, health commissioner for the city, and she mandated anti-racism training for all 7,000 members of the um, health department here in New York. And I saw her recently and I asked her, I said, that's amazing that you did that and really important in our very multiracial city. I said, how did it go? And she said it went very well, largely, but there were some people who were hurt who didn't want to talk about it, who felt like the process was um, sort of trying to say that they themselves as individuals were racist. And I think that it's hard for us in America to grapple with the history. I mean, we've, we're seeing that right now. It's hard to talk about these issues. I don't accuse individuals of racism. I got a letter recently after my book came out and um, it was from a man whose son was a medical student who was involved in a study that showed that white doctors treated black and white patients differently for pain. And this man was really angry. And he said, why would you call my, why would these researchers call my son a racist? Now he's a great doctor. And at first my heart did hurt a little for him. And then I thought, no, it's important that he understood that there is some implicit bias that he was carrying along that probably he didn't take into his eventual practice. You talk about implicit bias. We've done lots of conversations about bias. Uh, Jessica Nordella, Minnesota-based journalist, has a book out, The End of Bias, The Beginning. Do you believe that we can get rid of bias in America? I do, but it's not going to happen easily. Um, I think that because of the pandemic and because um, the murder of George Floyd made um, many people in America finally grapple with racism and sort of reckon with it and admit that it exists. Um, but I don't think, you know, a man should be murdered by the police and a video taken of it for our country to come to grips with this. Um, but I think that unfortunately it was a step to say people are murdered, that black people are murdered. And this is part of our, you know, the police are part of our government. And we've got to talk about this and we have to deal with it. I think happily for me, my book came out at a good time when people's minds are open to talking about this in America. And especially, you know, medical organizations like the American Medical Association and racism Linda, I wonder if there's another way of thinking about this. We had um, another prominent writer, African-American writer on the show a couple of years ago, Heather McGee. She has a book out, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, addressing many of the same issues as you, although not specifically from a healthcare point of view. She talks about the real crisis being the privatization of everything. This certainly comes out on the education front. I did a 
interview with Leslie Fenwick, the author of Jim Crow's Pink Slip about the privatization of the education, the high school system in America, which has compounded racism. Is the crisis, uh, Linda, one of the American state? The only way of getting out of this is by having a stronger state, which can actually regulate and legislate on these issues that have, have, have destroyed the country in many ways for the last two or 300 years. That's a very interesting question, and I'm going to answer it in a kind of a different way to say that I, my mother's 91. My children are in their 20s. They're just slightly post-college. And um, when we had my mother's last, her 90th birthday, we had this really interesting conversation. And uh, my mother is just like, if everyone votes, the country will be better. We just have to vote. And then my kids were like, we have to just abolish the whole system and start from scratch. And that is the only way we can have you know, equality. And that's the only way we can have fairness and justice in America. And I was kind of like in the middle because I don't believe uh, I, you know, I don't believe voting alone is the answer. And I also don't believe that abolishing the system completely is the answer. I'm the kind of person who um, has seen change happen. You know, I think it made a difference when all of the pe people, um, the employees of our health system in, a, in New York had to go through that anti-racism training. And you're seeing more of that. I think that, um, and, and I'm happy that of the changes that have happened. And I'm happy to see some of the systems and institutions working on this. And one of the things I, um, one of the people I quote in my book is Audre Lorde, the great poet and thinker. And one thing she said to me, me personally, when I met her, I was asking her about the end of racism. I said, do you think this country can ever get rid of racism? And she says, pay attention to when it feels the worst because when something dies, it doesn't go out easily. It clings to life. It's, you know, doesn't want it to end. And that's when you see the ugliest part. So right now, sometimes I look at our country and I see the divisions and the divisiveness. I see people not wanting the 1619 Project and other books in their schools, probably not my book either. But um, I think this, I'm hoping that this is the going out ugly part, that it's, it is receding. We are getting better as it, even though it feels bad right now. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Audrey uh, Lord. We did a show with Maisha Cherry, a, a great student of Lord on rage. Uh, I'm curious, um, Linda, where was your mother born? My mother was born in Chicago. And one thing we did was um, go back and meet my mother and I in 2020, right before the pandemic shut down everything, we went back to where she was born and raised, which is called Inglewood, California. It, people in Inglewood presently live to age 60. That's very young for life, short life expectancy. But nine miles north, they live to age mm. 90. Uh, yeah, yeah my, my point was, and, and, I, and I, I, I take that point, but I, I assume your mother was born, what, in a, into a relatively working class family? My uh, grandparents came during the Great Migration from Mississippi. They were dirt poor farmers who right. sort so of... So they were working class... African-Americans who made something of themselves. She clearly still believes in the system, in voting. You said you're in the middle. Where did your kids go to college? My children went to private colleges on full scholarship. So they're pretty smart kids from the middle class. Their mother is a prominent writer and journalist. Why do you think that these generations are so different, whereas your kids, I'm not saying they're privileged, but they're certainly kids who have grown up um, in very different circumstances from your 
mother or certainly the relatives, uh, the parents and grandparents of, of your mother, why are they so much more uncompromising towards the system than your mother? I think that that's just a trend in young people right now. I'm actually really excited by it. Um, when I was a younger person, I was not like that. I was really believed in the system. I was in lockstep with my parents. I think that I'm very interested in my children being different than me. And even than their grandmother, who's basically their best friend. My children love their grandmother and really listen to her closely and really respect her opinion but they do think differently. And I think it's just a different generation. And um, my children have been, were at first shocked by the first time they experienced discrimination. They were so surprised by it. Or when they, you know, watched, um, when they saw Trump get elected, they were like, cause they grew up in Obama in the age of Obama. And it was so shocking for them. So I think that they are just a different, more activist generation. And I'm proud of them for that. Well, it's certainly an ongoing conversation. It's not going away, for better or worse. Under the skin, the hidden toll of racism on American lives and on the health of our nation. An important book from an important writer. Congratulations, Linda, on that. And I hope we have many more conversations in the future. What else are you reading these days to keep yourself uh, entertained? Actually, I did have one other question before we get to this bit. Um, you've also written a number of books on black parenting, the black women's guide to physical health. Um, do you think that black and white people should be reading different books on health and health care? Well, it was interesting when I got, um, when I was uh, pitching the black parent, the body and soul, especially people were saying, why do black women need our own health book? And certainly we did need our own health book because I'm just going to give you an example. Some, like if you have a rash on your face or whatever, you have a rash on some part of your body, then you go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't recognize the rash because this gold standard of rash detection is on white people. And that's having different experiences. Um, said, wait a minute, I want to lift up, acknowledge those those differences and and sort of differences in our health in general, because um, otherwise it just makes us feel that we're complaining into the wind or that we are something's wrong with us if our experience is different. That book, I, people still have me sign that book, it's 20 some years old, um, and people still have me sign those books because they are so appreciative. And even the, you know, back then, if you picked up, I, I bought, um, you know, a pregnancy book and all of the people were white. All of the names were sort of white sounding names. And I'm thinking, wow, this book doesn't feel like it's for me. It doesn't talk about, you know, my skin color. It doesn't talk about my experience. It doesn't have pictures of people who look like me that was illustrated. And there were no illustrations of um, black women or women of color. And so that's why I ended up doing these books. I think my own thinking has changed. I'm not doing as much on the self-help as I am about that sort of a more activist stance, because I don't think that um, poor health outcomes can be solved by individuals just doing everything right. Because if that was the case, the woman that reviewed my book in the New York Times book review would not have had such a hard time. She said, she, I read your 2018 book, Why Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life or Death Crisis, and I decided I'm going to do everything right so it doesn't happen to me. And she still ended up hospitalized five days before her baby was born and wrote about it in the review of my book. And so clearly there is a different experience that you have 
based on race in the healthcare system. And as I said, Linda, before rudely interrupting myself, um, what what else are you reading in addition to uh, your your new? Well, I'm sure you don't. You're not re- rereading your Under the Skin book, but that needs to be read. What else would you suggest our, our viewers and listeners read these days, Linda? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Stephen Thrasher because I'm reading. I re, I gave a blurb to Stephen Thrasher's book, The Viral Underclass. Mm. Um, but we're having an event together in a few weeks, so I'm rereading his book. Um, which I really love and I respect. The other book I'm reading is called Take My Hand, and it's by Dolan Perkins Valdez. And it's a fictionalized account of the Ralph sisters story. And um, it was funny because when I was doing visiting them in um, Montgomery, I saw a copy of the book and I said, oh, what's that? I know. Uh, I know that author. And it was their story fictionalized. So I'm reading that because I'm also going to see her and I want to be respectful and let her know I read her book. Well, I know you're also the author of a, of a, of a piece of fiction yourself, Passing for Black, a novel by uh, Linda Villarosa. Quite a, quite a Linda. Congratulations, Linda. And we will talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you. It's been um, good being with you. Nice conversation.